Good evening and welcome back to yet another episode of the Hackable You podcast. You're joined by me, Ed, your host, and my two esteemed friends and colleagues, Alex and Will. Guys, I don't know why I say good evening every single time I start this because the listeners are going to be listening to this whenever they are. Might be first thing in the morning on a Saturday or Monday on their commute and we're here saying good evening. I must come across slightly weird. Hey, how are you guys doing anyway? Doing all right. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. <laughs> that covers us, I think. <laughs> Covering everyone there. Yeah, doing really well. Doing really good. I mean, given the, uh, the the light nowadays, I think I wake up, it's dark. I work, don't really look outside, and now it's dark again. So it could be it could be morning or evening. Who knows? Doesn't really matter. It's it's always a good time for a, for a uh, hackable your podcast, though, isn't it? Hey, hey. number one fan. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Well, you know, it is our Halloween special podcast episode. Add in some some spooky after effects. Um, Halloween is coming up round about when we release this podcast, so we thought we'd bring you a Hackable You Halloween special for episode 16, so all sorts of spookiness and darkness to talk about today. And with that lovely little link in, see what I'm doing here guys, we will jump into the dark cybersecurity news for this episode. Cool, and here we are. Halloween special cyber news. I don't know why I said it was dark. I mean, pretty much all cyber news, I guess, is dark in some ways. So let's just run with that, okay? <laughs> and first up this week relates to a uh, COVID-19 vaccine provider that have been hit by a cyber attack and data breach. Now, Dr. Reddy's is a global pharmaceutical company providing medicine and treatments for a host of problems and diseases. More recently known for being contracted to develop Russia's Sputnik V COVID-19 vaccine, they've been in the cyber news this week for falling victim to a cyber attack and data breach. According to reports, the data breach forced the big pharma to shut down labs in Brazil, India, Russia and the UK. Furthermore, their own public response to the cyber attack stated in order to contain the issue, all data centre services had to be shut down. The company hasn't released any details of the cyber attack and has declined to comment any further. However, related or not, this follows on from recent news in the summer from the Department of Homeland Security and the National Cyber Security Centre here in the UK regarding increased levels of threats from advanced persistent threats due to the coronavirus situation. This may or may not be linked to cyber espionage, however, it's all a little coincidental, don't you think? Uh, I think it's absolutely all linked together um you know there's been various reports warning of all sorts of state actors um looking to either you know uh, benefit from the covid pandemic or to gain um potential adv- advantages over other nations when it comes to co- uh, covid um i guess and general uh, medical research um you know the the whole covid response vaccine um thing has has become a political issue as much as a scientific issue. Um, and, you know, I don't think there's a single nation state that's not looking to ensure that they are um, leading that area because, you know, wh- whoever leads the vaccine race and, you know, is is in a very advantageous, com- um, you know, position from a global political point of view. Absolutely. You mentioned the other 
the race there, the race to get the vaccine, very similar to what the Cold War with the nuclear arms race. And, you know, if that was happening nowadays, you bet your bottom dollar that cyber attackers were going after nuclear plans and developments and all these sorts of things. In fact, they still are today with the current presence of nuclear warheads. Um, but you're absolutely right. There is a race now. Whoever gets this vaccine done properly and first, they're going to get the limelight and uh, everyone's going to want a piece of that pie. I'm not surprised that, you know, uh, creators or, or producers of one particular vaccine, especially Russia's, are seeing some form of cyber attack. I think it's, I think it's really disappointing in many ways, you know, because, um, you know, vaccines are, vaccines are so, you know, I guess essential for us um, as a you know, well, I guess as a species, um, and it's unfortunate to see, you know, there's already, you know, loads of fake news going around about vaccine and, and where these nations are rushing to try and get one up on each other, then, you know, I think it just breeds further, um, you know, negativity and further risk of people saying, mm, you know, I don't think I'll go for it at a time when we need we need people to trust it the most. Um, and we need the, sci the scientists to be, you know, the the key, um, the, the key there to make sure that people, you know, trust these vaccines because trust with vaccines is is paramount. And if people feel like, you know, governments or nations are rushing them out to to get one up on the other nation, then, you know, it, it's going to destroy vaccines um, trust for years to come. As if they're not already controversial enough as it is. So next up this week looks at Donald Trump's 2020 election campaign website being defaced by a cryptocurrency scam. Now, here we're talking about how hackers took over President Trump's 2020 election campaign website late on Tuesday, replacing part of the website with a cryptocurrency scam before returning to its original content several minutes later. The website appeared to be defaced with a message stating this site had been seized and mentions of fake news and a claim that multiple devices had been compromised to give full access to Donald Trump and his relatives. The crypto element here comes from a public vote posed by the threat actors asking people to donate Monero cryptocurrency to two wallets. One wallet for the alleged stolen data to be shared with the public and the other to remain private. Whichever wallet had more funds in by the end date, the attackers would honour their result, supposedly. Guys, I feel like this is a bit of a waste on attackers if you're able to get control of the 2020 election campaign for the most hated, most loved uh, presidential candidate in history. What do you think? Missed opportunity? That's a terrible waste. Why didn't you spin up a phishing site? Why didn't you distribute malware? Um, yeah, really strange. They only they had they only had control of the site for about half an hour. Uh, and the, the, the campaign have said there's been no data compromise because apparently allegedly data wasn't stored on the web server or the website um but web defacement is very very low level and it's a yeah it's it's, it's a bit it's a big waste of an opportunity if, if you have a foothold like that uh, i'd like to think somebody more experienced and more motivated would have done a lot more i guess who knows if that has or hasn't happened right very all we true. know is that something's been defaced with a bit of a cryptocurrency scam it was only maybe two or three episodes ago we mentioned how you know people use a bit of smoke and mirrors something simple here to kind of distract people and i'm not going to uh you know start claiming um you know that it was uh nailing nailing, nailing it down to any particular threat actor but if you think back to the last time 
President Trump had a um, had a website defaced, or you know, it was probably um, after the drone strike attack in in Iran, where Iranian, if you remember back, oh, yeah. Iranian hackers then defaced some of the, I think they were like governmental websites and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Picture of Trump getting punched. Um, Trump getting punched. <laughs> Obviously, we're not saying it is. I'm not saying it is is Iran because you know there's Iran, China, and Russia who. Um, you know, three major, you know, cyber capable nations that are all um, known, well known to have interest in the in the election campaign, or well, you know, mostly for different reasons. Mm. You know, Iran for um, you know it's probably repercussions. Um, China because of the you know trade deals and you know they don't. I don't think they really favour having Trump in there. The only nation out of those three that is interested in continuing Trump's presidency probably is Russia. Um, so, I think it's I think that's quite interesting because I don't think you've probably ever, or perhaps we've never got to a point where, you know, where we've got three, um, three threat actors that all have different reasons for attacking the same Western target, and some of those are conflicting as well. So that's quite interesting in some ways. I think conflicting yet share the same end you know common denominator we don't like trump we don't like the us in whatever way possible indeed yeah you know? yeah i mean it's yeah the, the ultimate aim is is a is an attack on western democracy society etc power um but you know for their own you know, they're playing their own games you know despite them being fairly close and we're not the only like cyber security organization podcast content provider that has mentioned numerous times around cyber threats around the election campaign uh, many vendors, many public uh, security personalities have stated how cyber activity against this election in particular is really pivotal. You know, it can really shape the future of the world and the, the way in which America and the rest of the kind of um, kind of NATO type organizations and countries link together. I think, uh, you know, a simple website defacement, albeit we've seen it, like you said before, with Trump, we've seen it with Theresa May during the Brexit campaigns and the, uh, the UK election campaigns. Uh, you know, website defacement happens. Yeah, there's a bit of a laugh and joke behind it. This time, a cryptocurrency scam, potentially, maybe not. Um, you know, I think other stuff is going on for sure that obviously isn't public known that could really impact the way in which this election goes. I just find it funny how website defacement is kind of what gets the most amount of attention here. I think it's the other thing as well is that it's a kind of con- almost a continuation of the you know, some of the issues of, of Trump, um, Trump's government at least, mm. and their cyber, you know, um, hygiene, if we want to call it that, or, you know, procedures perhaps. Um, and don't get me wrong, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to bash on, you know, any particular president. It just so happens that, unfortunately, Trump seems to be the, you know... Bash on Trump, in, it's in, fine, in, I think the majority of the globe does. In the news, <laughs> you know. Um, but, you know, there was a, there was some an article, I think, a couple of weeks ago now, where I... Um, a European security researcher essentially managed to guess Trump's Twitter password um, that it was Mega. I, lo- Ma- I love Maga. myself, one, two, three. <laughs> no. I think it was like Mega or Maga or something like Maga one of his like, catchphrases or something. And then apparently another one of them at some point was your fire. Make, make America like, great again, mate. Maga. Make America great again. Oh, uh, you know if, what? If that I didn't d- trigger in your brain. <laughs> I didn't even know. I had no idea what that stood for. <laughs> oh, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's. I guess, and, and the question to raise there is you know um you know there there are some real basics cyber basics there that we 
well, frankly, to get get taught to school children. Let's be Simple honest. Simple cyber hygiene, right? Yeah, around password usage and you know, and I guess the ultimate question in my head is, you know, how how much can you trust someone to, you know, be in control of you know the, one of the biggest nuclear warhead stocks on the earth, who can't even de- you know can't even pick a decent password. You'll find that the uh, nuclear missile codes in under Trump's uh, presidency are probably one, two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> That's too long. One, two, three. Too long. <laughs> yeah. Just one button. It's a big red button under his desk, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, let's move on to our last news item for this week, which is a cheeky credential compromise. And we use that word because the popular high street Piri Piri chicken restaurant Nando's has suffered a credential stuffing attack, leaving some customers angry after reports their accounts were used to place high volume orders. Nando's confirmed that while their systems had not been hacked, they were a victim of the popular and easy cyber activity that uses known usernames and passwords from previous data breaches to access new accounts where the credentials are the same. Credential stuffing is a headache, it's an annoying instant to deal with, but it always seems to cause a lot of noise and is relatively successful in the grand scheme of things. Guys, are you partial to a cheeky Nando's? Where does this rate on your piri-piri scale of hotness and cyber attacks? Oh dear, he said it. <laughs> um, th- for, for me, this is one of those rare occasions where I am going to side with the user here um, around potentially having a weak password because like, this, I, I I went to Nando shortly after lockdown. So what you do is you rock up and then Be you scan in. Be careful about what you're about to say, right? <laughs> no, here we go. So st- stick with me, stick with me. So y- y- you rock up at Nando's, you, you, you scan in and you, you wait for like 45 minutes and then you have to sanitize and all this stuff to get to get in you get shown to your table and then you get told you have to order on your phone and then you have to create an account and i was like oh i don't want to create an account i just want to order some food so i can sympathize with people having some weak or some reused passwords only for this specific occur- occurrence call yourself a security professional get out where's the soap <laughs> wash your mouth out you're not supposed to be here when it comes to nando's i'm sorry not much getting between me and my chicken let okay let's take a bet now 50% or more of the passwords have the word cheeky in it. Yeah, I think that's a really good shout. Probably yeah. probably have Nando's in it and probably have chicken in it. And halloumi. Oh, making me Ooh. hungry. Yeah, mate, honestly. When's <laughs> the next me... hackable you Nando's outing? <laughs> I thought a really interesting part of this article, though, was that the app supposedly doesn't store payment information. So for an account to be compromised and orders to be placed that have left customers out of pocket, I don't understand how that equates, how that adds together. It's definitely like a to be continued, isn't it? We're gonna. I think we're gonna learn some more about this in the coming days or weeks. Um, because yeah, you're, you're quite right. The, the card information isn't stored on the account. So for an account to be compromised and then suddenly the customers have had their card details taken from the account when it's not there in the first place, a eh. little bit odd, a little bit odd. But um, what is good is that the restaurant have said they will refund um, any funds that have been taken fraudulently. I I think that says something. Do you not like why re- why give away money if you're not? I know. You know it's like an admission, isn't it? It's like yeah, I'm sort of sorry. Don't ask any more questions. Have some money back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, there we have it. That wraps up the cybersecurity news for this week. Interesting as always. I'm definitely hungry, uh, but let's jump into our topic of the week. topic of the week this week we're going to change tact a little bit bring you something a little bit different where we can extend a topic of the week over a few podcast episodes so we're going to bring you a three-part series looking at the different hats within offensive and cyber security 
Now, if you haven't heard the term of hats within security before, um, they are kind of taught within the cyber basics and the foundational elements of uh, Security Plus and other similar cybersecurity certifications like we mentioned on the previous episode. And they are your white hat, your grey hat and your black hat hackers, researchers, cybersecurity professionals, whatever you want to know, name it. So we'll quickly give you an intro into what each one is and then this week we're going to focus on white hat hackers next week we're going to dive into gray hat hackers and then lastly we'll follow up with uh, black hat hackers in the next episodes to come so firstly white hat hackers a white hat hacker is a good guy somebody who is uh, paid or contracted to uh, do a cybersecurity test a penetration test a simulated cyber attack against your organization where they not only have known approval and um, the company are fully aware on what's going on. A black hat hacker is basically a, a, a malicious actor, um, a malicious hacker, the polar opposite to a white hat hacker. Um, and I know there's been one thing I do want to mention as well, there's been some talk about in the industry, hasn't, hasn't there, about around changing some of these names um, because of some of the connotations that they carry. But... Yeah, and what I would say is, is I don't know if it's common knowledge, but did you guys know where the actual terms came from? I believe it's from the Westerns, is that right? Yeah, so yeah. so typically in, in, you know, in Western films, the bad guys wore black hats and the, the good guys, the hero, wore white hats. But um, there you go. anyway, that's just a little bit of, little bit of history there. Um, but I think, I, think, I think where this... Do you know? I think where this kind of plays plays in is um you know like we said we've got the white hat and then the black hat and and then you have the gray hat in the middle which is obviously uh you know you mix white and black and you get gray Ta-da. Ta-da. tomorrow we'll learn shapes <laughs> <laughs> i'll leave it up to alex to talk, to talk about gray hat only because he's wearing a firstly he's wearing a dressing gown whilst he recorded this so are you 80 years oh, old because that dressing gown is gray i've been exposed <laughs> <laughs> Might as well admit it now. I'm in a nice, big, fluffy, grey dressing gown. It's so warm and so cosy. <laughs> Go and get your slippers on as well. You're already got them on. I know you like. I know you're 30 on Saturday. Happy birthday! By I'm the way, I'm not 30 on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so moving on to your grey hat hacker. Then your grey hat hacker is like a hybrid between the white and the black. So they are someone that may have good intentions, but actually sometimes crosses the boundaries and will sometimes hack or research without permission. They'll push at the lines as to what is acceptable. So where you have your white hat, who will always operate within a designated defined scope and always has the intention of being good and always uh, does what they're doing with permission. Uh, The black hat hacker has no permission. They have completely malicious intent. Bang in the middle is your grey hat hacker, who may have some good intentions, um, but they push the boundaries of what's acceptable. Lovely. Well, thank you very much, guys. That gives a really good high-level overview into each component and each hat. But this week, we really want to focus on white hats specifically. Will, you know, you've recently jumped into uh, a shiny new position that looks at security testing in its uh, completeness. So we mentioned right, white hat hackers being the good guys, being the people that are um, tasked and contracted to, to, to conduct security tests and assessments. I just want to dive in a little bit around, you know, what that might look like, why companies might do it and, you know, what benefits that provide to an organisation. So, you know, from from my point of view, and I'd be interested to know your guys' thoughts here, I think 
We all know security testing is a pivotal part of any security program. It allows you to identify vulnerabilities, holes, weaknesses in people, processes or technology and essentially shapes a lot of what a cybersecurity strategy might be. You have a couple of options. You can, you know, have in-house talent that commit those penetration tests for you, although, you know, we all know that's quite a hard role to fill. Uh, People often kind of dart around when they get quite skilled. Um, And uh, there's a lot of money to be made for companies who uh, offer penetration testing white hacking services, the likes of... Uh, Pentest Partners, Cisco, Orange Cyber Defense all kind of do these sorts of services. Um, and the idea is you will scope a test with an attacker and say, I want to target X application. I want to target X area. Here's all of the information that you need. Uh, please go ahead and uh, attack it and give me a nice shiny report at the end that exposes what I need to fix. Is that a good way of describing it, Will? What are the real benefits for doing you know, white hat hacking, white hat security tests? I guess, I mean, when we say the benefits of White Hat, you know, from an organisational point of view, you don't really have many options to have anything but a White Hat. Um, Because if you're... I guess there's an implicit Black Hat opportunity though, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you're paying someone to do a Black Hat test on you, then, you know, you've probably... You've been had. (laughs) You've probably messed up somewhere along the line. um, And and you need to speak to my uncle. My my uncle has an opportunity for you uh, overseas if you you fall for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, the benefits of you know of running running tests, um, you know, are very you know as as Ed said, really, you know, it's, it's about kind of identifying. It's essentially about identifying risks um, before um, before the real attackers do. Um, you know, and, and there's different there's you know, there's there's loads of different tests and different areas you can test. You know, you can test new applications and, and products that you build. You can test current security controls to make sure they're working. Or, you know, um, you can you can do a, you know a more kind of generic test like what was called a kind of red team, um, where you know you're looking at a kind of wider scope. So it's it's quite a big subject, but it all comes down to really about about paying someone um, to basically hack something that you own as an organisation and find those vulnerabilities and report those vulnerabilities to you um, before someone else does. And a key thing to mention, right, it's all done because they've been given permission to do it. Someone hasn't approached them and said, oh, let me do a test for you and I'll give you a report. You know, you would argue whether they're a white hat or not. It's all around kind of permission-based. It, the, uh, it's known activity that's going on um, and there are signed contracts in place that state, you know, what can and can't be done. The other thing that is key to, to mention for white hat uh, security tests or white hat hackers is that they tend to follow defined ways of working and frameworks of assessment so if you're asking them to assess web applications they will often follow processes aligned under the OWASP uh, frameworks and other sorts of known ways to test things which means the report you get follows some form of standardized format which then is the kind of the, the singular language that's used across the board within security. You get CV, CVSS scores, links to known CVEs and other sorts of things like that that make a report easy to understand and ingest, albeit sometimes can be very, very technical. So Alex, you mentioned earlier that uh, a white hat hacker is really on uh, really on the fence between that grey hat hacker, right? They are ultimately good and have approval uh, whereas the grey hats kind of sit on that line, you know, where where does that line end? You know, would a white hat hacker cross the line? What's the kind of reasons why white hats are white hats and not grey hats, if that makes sense? 
Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so it's really important for the white hat hacker to remain within the scope of what's been agreed or and remain within the parameters of the, the test that you've asked them to do. There's actually lots of legal um, implications by deviating outside of that. And, you know, in there's various across the globe, but in the UK, you have the Computer Misuse Act. Um, it, it makes a whole host of activity illegal from unauthorized access to unauthorized access with intent. Um, so to, to, to circle back and, and, and answer your question, you know, the, the white hat hacker would always stick within the parameters of what's been agreed due, due, to, the, due to these legal ramifications. Essentially, they'd be breaking the law if they went outside of Absolutely. it, right? yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And that's you know where that blurred line is kind of absolute. You know, And I guess to give an example of that, if I was to ask Will to um, come and test an application and that application had a few databases, I'd be very specific to say to my white hat hacker will this is my application here's the ip addresses please test the database find vulnerabilities but don't do anything else and if will was to then discover a you know a middleware layer uh, that's not linked to the specific application and was to uh, breach that cause an issue or access data he shouldn't all of a sudden you're outside the scope and could potentially be uh, prosecuted done for uh, you know computing misuse act or, or and it any other kind of contractual legality there might be in place. Okay, and if you want to know a real, a real world example of what happens, um, I can't remember the exact uh, case for it, but um, there's there's loads. Well, there's been a few cases in the US where uh, pen testers have been arrested um, for you know inadvertently going beyond their scope, or you know, or people believed that they had gone beyond their scope. Um, and they've been, you know, arrested, charged, you know, and punished for it. Um, so it's not something that, you know, your your um, your average pen tester is going to take take lightly. They're, they're going to be deadly serious, um, and want to have a real rock solid, um, you know, scope and rules of engagement to really ensure that they're not going to, you know, become a full victim to, um, you know, to some sort of legal proceedings. What I find really. What I find really interesting about white hats are they absolutely have the skills and decision to be a grey hat or ultimately a black hat. You know, the guys that you're, guys and girls, uh, men and women you're hiring to do these security tests are sitting in your rooms or against your applications, ultimately doing it for the good and the betterment of your organisation, albeit for a fee. Um, there's nothing stopping them apart from their own morals about turning around and doing something malicious because ultimately they have the skills to do so. Um, and we'll touch a little bit on uh, in another episode about, you know, black hats who have, you know, bad people that have gone good and how governments and uh, law enforcement tend to sway the bad guys into becoming the good guys kind of thing. Um, but I always do find that like you're giving someone a lot of power and, you know, and these are dangerous people really at the core. And that wraps up the topic for this week. White hat hackers, the good guys. Hopefully you learned something there and we will... Uh, dive further into this topic and the three-part series with grey hat hackers and black hat hackers in the next few episodes but thank you anyway guys for your input on that one so halloween it's all about being spooky it's all about night time and the darkness and we would not be honoring our halloween special if we didn't talk about the mysterious dark web in this week's Secrets from the Sock. So the dark web, guys, a topic that I'm pretty sure everyone loves to listen to. 
a real unknown within the industry and within the public and something that uh, it has a number of horror stories or horror rumours and myths surrounding it. And what we want to do in Secrets from the Sock this week is expose what is the dark web and why an organisation and you working within a security operations role should care about it. So, guys, the dark web. What is the dark web? Please, what's the best way that you can summarise it? And I challenge you not to use the iceberg mentality and the iceberg <laughs> analogy. You was laughing because there's no other way. It's a very scary portion of the internet. <laughs> Done. <laughs> <sentence over. laughs> um, and what I think would be really useful in this segment is if we do some dark web myth busting as well, because it is very big and very scary. Uh, and if you don't know what it is, um, it could be quite uh, intimidating. Absolutely. I mean, in fairness, right? Myths. Can you buy drugs on the dark web? Yes. Can you buy hitmen on the dark web? Yes. Are there nefarious, you know, child exportation, human trafficking, and all these other horror stories on the dark web? Yes. But, you know, these things happen outside of the web with uh, gangs and all sorts anyway. It's just another digital way of doing it. But accessing the dark web, you know, there's not a special dance you need to do. You don't need to say uh, Beetlejuice in the mirror three times or Bloody Mary in the mirror three times. It's actually quite easy to get to. And although it's got the word dark in it, doesn't necessarily mean everything about it is bad. What have you got to say to that, Alex? Yeah, so to put it into a very simple layman's term to describe what the dark web is, it refers to websites that are not indexed. So they're not easily accessible. They're not sitting there on the surface. You can't access it through your normal web browser. You can't just Google and get results on the dark web. You have to use specific software such as Tor. Uh, there are a couple of other ways to get there as well, but you have to use some specialist software to get onto dark web. Uh, and, and like you said, you know, there are some really dark corners of the dark web and some very, very illicit stuff on there. However, it's not illegal to use the dark web because there are some very legitimate use, use cases for anonymizing yourself on there. Yeah, definitely. I think the dark web has privacy um, at its core and as an implicit, like you said, a, a private way of browsing um, parts that you mentioned, Alex, are un unindexed. A couple of use cases for the dark web, things like Facebook, they have a dark web page and a dark web presence. It's a dot onion link for Tor. Um, but you also have things, and we mentioned around drug sales, Silk Road. People probably would have heard of Silk Road before, which was like a modern day eBay for buying and selling illicit drugs online and other kind of materials and goods. And these things have just kind of evolved and grown and there are multiple what they're called marketplaces on the dark web now. Um, and yeah, like you said, it's a, it's a hidden place that's not as easy to access, but easy to access. The way that the Tor browser works is, um, so Tor is what you use to get access to the dark web. You log into Tor and rather than going from your home internet connection, bouncing across the public servers and landing on a web server at somebody else's end, what Tor will do is it will ping you across multiple different routes, across multiple different locations to anonymize where you're coming from so that the end website that you're browsing only sees the source IP of one of the routes rather than it being your home IP address or you. So essentially in that way, it kind of anonymizes you. But, uh, you know, the reason we're talking about it is because of its darkness and the scary nature of it because it's Halloween. And I think that's what I really want to call out is the the interesting side of the dark web where you have taken what we've mentioned. I'm pretty sure one of the first podcast episodes, uh, a current crime, drug dealing, human trafficking, whatever it might be, assassins, 
and you're giving it a digital forum in which for it to be used in you know you talk about you talk about all these horror stories you hear about the dark web and you know i i just urge you to google some of the stories and and take them with a pinch of salt but from my from my layman's terms of someone that's not sitting on there every single day but working alongside researchers that are you know in there's an element where a lot of these stories are true you only have to look at documentaries i can't remember what the name of the documentary on amazon prime is but it's all about silk road and ross albrick who you know um, is in prison not just for for drugs but really for hiring uh, a murder or um, contracting a murder against someone uh, via the dark web you know and these things do happen uh, and if you're going to be one of these people that just wants to hop on tour and start having a browse i would just remain uh, i would ask you to be cautious understand that using a vpn is the best way of doing it and uh, you definitely want to keep the software up to date um, and just you know be very careful about what you're strolling through and what you come across because uh, you know you can quite easily hop onto things that might put you in a place where you do not want to be so what does that really mean from an operational kind of sock role me working in a, a private or public sector company that uh, you know doesn't nearly need to interact with the dark web at all i think from my experience Yes, there needs to be a private concern and a thought about what threat the dark web represents. In most cases, it's a place where data that might have been exposed from a data breach is going to be publicised, sold, discussions against potential plans of cyber activity against an organisation can all be seen within dark web forums as well. And there are companies out there that you can pay to monitor the dark web for you and highlight to you when they find things i mean i've worked with companies in the past knowing that they've had uh things on uh, marketplaces advertised before with their name in or whether they've had forum posts with discussions based on current activity maybe it's malicious cyber activity maybe it's just a news thread on the dark web and you're able to detect these things and i think it's almost like having half an eye on the dark web as a as an industry or as an organization it's nothing in most cases, it's nothing you need to have a you know full focus on. You need to be sitting there indexing it every day, searching for these things. Absolutely, there are organisations, those that work in weapons, those that work in defence or politics, that probably have a bit more activity on the dark web than most. I think for, yeah, like I said, majority of organisations, having half an eye on it, having someone monitor that for you and highlighting any potential problems provides the benefit to you in a SOC role. What do you guys think of that? Would you argue against that? Would you say that's about right? No, I think I'd agree with that. I think, you know, yes, in an ideal world, it's, you know, depending on what your business is, business is obviously, uh, monitoring it is a good idea. Um, being aware of it, you know, just generally not worrying about it too much um, and perhaps familiarising yourself with being able to access it should you need to for any, you know, incident response purposes um, or any, you know, what I'm saying is, you know, if you ever needed to interrogate it for whatever reason, then, you know, it's good to to experience that and know how to do it. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't, you know, it's not um, <laughs> it's not something you should be having nightmares of. We never forget, we have time to jump into our spooky key takeaways for this week, starting with Alex. Give me your Hackable You Halloween special key takeaway. I joked about it earlier on in regards to uh, password reuse, but um, yeah. A reminder to always use a unique password and if you can use a password manager to avoid credential stuffing. What's spooky about that? Come on man, where's that where's the theatre? 
This is a this is a podcast. This is a show, man. Should I do my, Come on, should I do my witch laugh it. again? Yeah, there you go. Moving no, okay, on. moving on. Uh, <laughs> Will uh, coming to you for your key takeaway for this week. Uh, I'm going to say, when it comes to the dark web, familiarise yourself with it. You know, like Alex said, nothing wrong with logging on and having a look around, but do be a bit careful. There is some stuff on there that you don't want to see, um, both legally and mentally. Um, but absolutely check it out and make sure you you know you uh, you are aware of it and my key takeaway for this week is making sure you understand the three types of hats there are within offensive security your white hat your gray hat and your black hat and to be sure to tune into the next few episodes to find out more on the other two we didn't speak about today and that wraps up the podcast for this week. I want to thank everyone for listening. We wish you have a happy Halloween, being stuck inside, um, go trick-or-treating, but remember to remain at two metres apart, and we wish you all a very good day and weekend. Don't have nightmares, sleep tight.